you guys can please rise for the reading of God's Word. The reading comes from Acts chapter 3, verse 1 through 12. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk. This is the reading of God's word. You may be seated. I am going to invite you to pray for me. Uh, we'll spend just a moment of silence just to pray, and I'll be praying for you, and I'll close this time in prayer. Lord Jesus, you are the one we need to learn from. It is your voice we need to hear. And we are unable to hear it. We are deaf unless your Holy Spirit enables us to hear. Give us eyes to see, the ears to hear. Give us the malleable hearts that only you can bring, that we might hear exactly what you want us to hear and no more, nothing else. We pray against the evil one who loves to snatch the truth and take it away, to distract us, to dispel lies to us. And we ask for your Spirit's power that we might be able to hear the voice of our Heavenly Father and nothing else. Give us faith to believe. Your Word tells us only your Spirit is able to give us the gift, the ability to respond to your grace. Without your help, we are powerless to respond. So give us the ability, give us the delight. May our hearts leap at your word, your truth for us. We pray for those who are disheartened. Give us courage. For those of us facing temptation, give us strength. For those of us doubting your goodness, give us faith in your goodness in the midst of our trials. As Travis prayed, give us courage and help us to see that our cup overflows in the midst of our circumstance. We pray that you be glorified now. And that you would guide my tone, 
and that you would guide the meditations of our hearts, and you would be honored today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I absolutely love this city. Amen? I mean, I love the amenities. I love the tea, how I can get around anywhere. I love how there's always so much to do. I love the proximity to the water. And I love everything about this city. I mean, my wife, Kendra, and I, we recently bought a place uh, in East Boston. And we love the city so much that we want to be here for the long haul. And we really consider this to be our home. But there's one thing about this city that I absolutely hate. And that is Tom Brady (laughs) and the New England Patriots. Needless to say, I was extremely disappointed last week when your New England Patriots won a Super Bowl. In the dying moments of the game, I mean, the Rams, I'm not a huge LA Rams fan, they betrayed us and, and I don't like them either. So I really wasn't rooting for anyone, but I was rooting against the Patriots. But the Rams were only down by a single touchdown in the dying moments of the game. And they made a strong push. And they even got near the red zone. I think they might have got to the red zone. And in a single play, the New England Patriots intercept the ball. And at that moment, all hope was lost. In a single moment, in a single decisive play, all hope was lost. Like a football, all hope was deflated. Pun absolutely intended. (laughs) I know that was a cheap shot. But everyone knew at that moment that it was all over, that there wasn't enough time to come back. There wasn't enough runway. There wasn't time on the, on the clock. I mean, all was lost by the interception. That was the death blow, the all is lost moment. When is that moment for you? Perhaps for some of us, it was when we blew it in a relationship. We disappointed a friend. We betrayed a loved one. We said harmful things that should never come out of anyone's mouth. We can't take it back. We didn't come through. And no matter what we say, no matter what we do, no matter how many times we apologize, we just know things will never be the same. Perhaps for some of us, it was when we reached for the bottle and we reverted back to old patterns. And we know that such behavior could be destructive not only to us, but to those we love most. And yet, no matter how much we try, we find it very difficult to leave those old patterns behind. What we need in this moment, what we need in those moments where all hope is lost, where we lose courage, where we lose strength to continue, is we need someone from the outside. We need help to assist. We need help to get us through. What we need is strength and hope. We've been looking in the book of Acts, and we're going through a series called The Church Empowered, and we've been looking at how God has provided His people strength and His church hope. As we come to our passage today in Acts chapter 3, we find that there is a lame man who is in need of that very thing. So what can we learn from a lame man or the story of this lame man? And how can it provide us 
with strength and hope. So I've got two questions today. Two questions to guide and track our, our line of thought and where we're going. First, where is hope lost? Where is hope lost? And second, where is hope found? Where is hope lost? Where is hope found? That's where we're going. So first, where is hope lost? Now, when we come to our text, we find that the apostles Peter and John are headed to the temple to pray. The text tells us it's the ninth hour, which is around three o'clock in the afternoon. You know, everyone knew that was the time to pray. That was the time to flock to the temple with sacrifices and prayers. And it was during this religious hour that they encounter a man who has been born lame. He has never known a single day in his life where he was able to take a step. He was a congenital cripple from the get-go, from birth. The entirety of his life, every bit of it, all over 40 years of it, he was in desperate need of the help of others. Consider this man's employability. I mean, there were no such things as, as desk jobs. There were no laws against discrimination, no concern for equal equality. The only way he was able to eat, if he wanted to eat, he had to beg. And that's precisely what takes him to the temple. He's there because there's a lot of traffic and there's a lot of opportunities for someone maybe to take notice, to take pity, and to throw him some change. Moreover, we are told that this man is so helpless on his own that he was unable to even position himself for survival. He had to actually get help from someone else daily for them to actually carry him to his post each and every day so that he might have a chance to make it. Left on his own, all hope was lost. He had no idea that when he encountered Peter and John, that his life was about to change. I mean, all he could hope for was some extra change, some food to eat, to get enough to get through the day, through the week maybe. But that was it. And what God wanted for this man was to restore him and to make him whole. And so Peter says, I'm sorry, I've gotten a change, but what I do have, what I've got is Jesus. And I know his power. And by his power, by his name, by who he is and what he represents, by his goodness, by his name, rise and walk. The author, it seems as though he intentionally slows things down. He wants you to see what he sees. We know that the author of this book is a physician, and he, he just, his mind is blown. And so he describes the event unfold with mind-blowing details. Verse 7, and he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong, and leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And in case we missed it, and all the people saw him walking and praising 
God and recognized him as the one who sat at a beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. They were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. It's as if Luke, the author, is trying to say, look, I'm a physician, and I'm not able to heal anyone like the way this man was healed. This man was born a cripple. I mean, he never even learned how to take a baby step. And yet, without any muscle memory, without any time for rehab, he gets up, he takes a step, and then he takes another and another. And soon enough, this man is leaping. He is leaping. When was the last time you leaped? Perhaps it was when your team won the Super Bowl. Perhaps it was in middle school when you did jumping jacks or somersaults or cartwheels or you did flips on a trampoline. But this word leap, I mean, it seems excessive for an adult. But here is a man for over 40 years who has never taken a step in his life, and we find that he is leaping. What else can I do? If you guys have seen the movie Spider-Man with Tobey Maguire, then you might uh, agree with me that the best scenes of the movie are when he's just beginning to discover his spidey powers. Like, whoa, dude, I can climb walls. I can shoot web. I can leap. And he jumps from one building to another, and then he makes even a bigger leap, and he makes it a bigger leap. And then he, <laughs> soon enough, we find him jumping from building to building, bursting out, woohoo! Yippee! And he's leaping because he can. Imagine the newfound abilities of this man. Maybe he's doing somersaults. Maybe he's doing cartwheels. Who knows? But this man is leaping. The people recognize this beggar. It is apparent that there has been a complete metamorphosis. They recognize the man for sure. Then they're going, What's that about? What's that about? And so the paparazzi get around, Peter and John, asking them, really, they want to know. What's that about? It is apparent that this cripple, this beggar, is asking the same question. I mean, he is clinging to Peter and John. Now, why is he clinging? Well, it's not because he's a cripple. It's not because he's lame. He's not weak and needs help up. I mean, he's doing jumping jacks and doing track. Undoubtedly, he's grateful, but why is he clinging? It's because he's in awe. It's because he's got so many questions. Dude, how did you do that? What does this mean? The apostle Peter finds it necessary to stop them in their tracks and says, Dude, this, this whole restoration has got nothing to do with my power and piety. Our restoration has got nothing to do with our power or piety. Perhaps you came here today hoping for three points in a poem. Perhaps you came here today hoping that you would be inspired for better living. 
Perhaps you came here today hoping that you would find some greater inner resolve to run faster, jump higher, to last a little longer. But is that where Peter directs us? Now, how many of you guys know the name Tony Robbins? Anybody? Tony Robbins is an inspirational speaker who has made a living by telling us that we have what it takes. You have what it takes to get to the next level, You have what it takes to become a better person, to become a better you, to live a fulfilled life. And his mantra, his patented phrase, unleash the power within, has inspired many and has made him millions. Now why? It's because we like to be motivated. It gives us this sense of hopefulness that that things can change. Unleash the power within. But is that where Peter directs us. Peter knows that if our hope, if our restoration hinged upon our power or upon our piety, we would fail. We would exhaust ourselves. We would disappoint others. We would fail. I mean, we would be only as good as our last performance. We'd be only as good as our last performance review. We'd only be as good as our last sermon. We'd only be as good as our last relationship. And we will fail. We'll exhaust ourselves to death, and we will eventually let others down. We'll disappoint everyone, and we might even come crash because it's a house of cards. We will fail because we have a problem. We have a problem if everything hinged on us. The problem is the lame cannot walk. If left to ourselves, all hope is lost. So where is hope found? Where is hope found? Now the paparazzi are gathering around and the beggar is clinging. Why? Because they want to know. we got so many questions. But what they really want is they want to know where hope can be found. They want to know where hope can be found. And Peter is eager to explain this to them. He is not interested in keeping these secrets for himself. He wants them to know. And so Peter opens his mouth, and he gives them a sermon. Now, this is Peter's second sermon in the book of Acts. The first sermon came after the miracle of Pentecost. And he gave a wonderful sermon, and, and many came to Christ. Here, this sermon comes after this miracle, the healing of the lame man. Now, miracles in the book of Acts serve two purposes. First, they validate the, the one who's doing the miracle. They, perform, they provide a calling card. You know, they provide a reason for why we should listen to them, demonstrating that God was backing his representative, his apostles. It provided a calling card. Second reason is that it provided a platform. It provided them an opportunity. He provided uh, the apostles an opportunity to explain the significance of the miracle to explain what that miracle meant. And so the miracle and the sermon that follows are not to be divorced from each other as two unrelated, disconnected pieces. They're not supposed to be divorced, but they're supposed to be interconnected because Peter's sermon is designed to explain what just happened. The miracle you just witnessed, not only what hope does it provide, but what does it mean for you? What does it mean for me? What are the implications of all this? And so the Apostle Peter, he 
tells them this. First, he says this. It's amazing. He says, why do you wonder at this miracle? Now, before we throw him into our context, Peter is not, he's not saying, dude, why are you so surprised? It's obvious if you saw a layman walking, you'd be surprised. He's not uh, being condescending. He's not being rhetorical. He's not shaming them for not knowing. He's saying, you've got so many questions. You want to know what happened and what this means. But what you're really asking is, where can hope be found? That's what you really want to know. And so, let me tell you. And so he opens his mouth in verse 13. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of her fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses, and his, and his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know, and the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Now, we listen to Peter and think, dude, this man needs some serious PR help. Uh, he needs a speech editor. I mean, really cool stuff is happening. Things are going great. Lame people are walking. And he comes in with, you killed Jesus. I mean, talk about killing a party. Talk about being a killjoy. Now, why is Peter saying this? What is Peter up to? What's he getting at? Peter knows that if we're going to find hope, we need to find hope in the right place. And the only way we're going to do that is if we ourselves are able to identify with this lame man. Now, sin has affected the entire cosmos. There is not a single square inch in the cosmos that has not been affected by sin. And so when we see this lame man, I mean, when we see this lame man being healed, I mean, hold the whole purpose of miracles is not to razzle-dazzle. It's not to create oohs and ahs. It's not like, like America's got talent. Like, oh my gosh, that's such an amazing trick. The whole notion of miracles, I mean, the, the fact that miracles exist, the fact that we're looking for miracles demonstrates that there's something terribly broken in the first place. And there's something wrong here. And the condition of this man, this lame man who was born lame, points to the real issue. It points to the fact that we ourselves are spiritually lame. It points to our own spiritual lameness of being born in sin. And this is why Peter asked the people to recall their history. He asked them to examine their own moral track record or lack thereof. <laughs> he says, he says, uh, you killed Jesus. I mean, like, how blind, how blind must we have been to have missed the chosen, the coming servant that came for us, 
And how could we have missed it? How blind must we have, must we have been to have missed the long-awaited servant that had been promised and spoken of for years and years and years and years and years and years and years. How unjust must we have been to deny the holy and righteous one? How vile must we have been to have murdered the author of life and demanded, demanded the release of a murderer instead? Give us Barabbas and crucify Christ. Give us Barabbas and crucify Christ. Now, the movie Mel Gibson was, uh, the movie Passion of the Christ was directed by Mel Gibson. And you may or may not know this about the movie, but Mel Gibson makes a cameo. He, he shows up in the film. You're never going to see his face, but you might see his hands. At the scene where Christ was crucified on the cross, the hands of the soldier who nailed Jesus on the cross, those hands belonged to none other than Mel Gibson. And by that gesture, he was trying to underscore that he himself, first and foremost, is responsible for the death of the Son of God. Do we identify ourselves as the ones who cried out, give us Barabbas, crucify Christ? Do we identify ourselves as the spiritually lame? And until we can identify ourselves as a spiritually lame, we will never turn to the only physician who can make us well. Verse 17, Peter says, And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. Dennis Johnson says of this passage, Astonishing as it is for a man of 40 who has never walked to leap in the temple, the cure of hearts paralyzed in sin is even greater. Now, towards the end of the sermon, Peter name drops Moses, Samuel, and Abraham. Moses, Samuel, and Abraham, because his audience gave them a lot of weight. And these figures, all the Old Testament, they spoke of Christ, and they look to Jesus, the only one who is able to restore us. The only one, our only hope. And if we are not going to listen to him, we will be cut off. That's what the passage says. Because our hope hinges on Christ and Christ alone. Now I believe that Christianity is utterly inclusive and utterly exclusive at the same time. It's utterly inclusive and utterly exclusive. First, Christianity is utterly inclusive. Christianity extends hope to everyone without discrimination. Religion says the good are in and the bad are out. But you see, that's only hope for those of us, the few of us who have everything together, which the Bible tells us is nobody. But what hope is there for those of us who have completely blown it 
and can never make things right. What hope do our children have when they go off the deep end and profoundly let us down? Christianity qualifies those who are not qualified. Christianity qualifies those who are not qualified. And I love that because it says that if there is nothing in me to qualify me for God's love, then there is nothing in me to disqualify me from God's love either. If there's nothing in me to qualify myself for God's love, there can be nothing in me to qualify, disqualify myself from God's love either. And that, my friend, is extremely good news for those of us who do not and cannot qualify. And that's all of us. And Christianity is utterly inclusive because it extends hope to everyone, including the lame. Christianity is also utterly exclusive. It's utterly exclusive. Christianity says that we are utterly lame. In fact, we are so utterly lame that there is only one physician who is able to heal us. Now, perhaps you've had a loved one who go through a surgery, or perhaps you were told that uh, your child or your friend or your spouse or yourself uh, could not just go to anybody. You would have to go to a specialist. In fact, you would have to go to the specialists of specialists. Maybe you would have to fly to another city, to another hospital, to someone more knowledgeable, to someone who knows what they're doing, another country. And the more dire of a circumstance you're in, the more specialized of a surgeon you need. And we are so utterly helpless, the Bible tells us, that there's only one physician who is able to make us well. One one physician is able to make us well. There's no alternate power or piety. There's no alternate program or philosophy. There's no other way, no other alternative. Now, the Apostle Peter would say in another sermon, another day, in fact, it's the very next day, he says this, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You see, That's so narrow. That's so narrow. But you see, I don't think the issue, the main issue is not so much the narrowness of it. I think the real issue that we have a problem with is that we do not consider ourselves that lame. We do not consider ourselves that lame. But the Bible's position is that we are so spiritually lame that there is only one physician who can heal us. I mean, if we were not lame, if there was any alternative route, if there's anything we could do, if we had any capacity for hope, the Bible tells us Christ died for nothing. Our hope hinges on Christ and Christ alone. Now, Peter was profoundly aware that he was spiritually lame. He was profoundly aware that he himself was the one who handed Jesus over to death. And yet even though, after denying Jesus three times, he also had a profound awareness that even someone like him, with his track record, could be redeemed, could be rescued, could be restored. That there's no one outside the boundaries of God's love and rescue. There's hope for us. 
There's hope. But the path to hope is through repentance. And repenting is agreeing with Jesus what he says is true. True of him, true of us, and what we need, our dire circumstance. It's agreeing with Jesus that we are the ones who handed Jesus over. We handed him over. Now that word handed over, it comes from the Greek word parodidomy. Uh, that word handed over, parodidomy, carries with it this meaning of wrath, God's wrath, his, his anger, his, his justice, his vengeance. That when God handed, when God's wrath was upon a, upon a nation in the Old Testament, God would hand that nation over to another nation. Handed over God's wrath. In Mark chapter 10, we see Jesus with Peter and the disciples on their way to Jerusalem. And Jesus says this. We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Isaiah 53, 12, looking forward to God's servant, the holy and righteous one, speaks of Jesus in this way. His life was handed over to death and was numbered among transgressors because their sins were handed over. Because their sins were handed over. At the cross, God has completely removed the only thing that could keep us from Him. And so in Christ, times of refreshing is possible only because in Christ, our sins have been blotted out. They're gone. The stain has been completely removed. There is not a single residue that remains. There is not a trace that it was even there. That the, Our whole slate has been wiped clean. You're not going to find it. You know, if you had an Etch-a-Sketch, you know, you, like, you draw the Etch-a-Sketch, you go left, you go right, and then when you don't like the picture, you're on the road. What did you do as a kid? You, you shaked it, but, every, but you, you can kind of still see the, you know, what you drew. There's no trace. It's gone, it's disappeared, it's not even there. You've been wiped clean. Your spiggity span, clean. Now what if we could believe that? Now some of you guys are saying, that's too much. I just can't believe it. I mean, maybe this is the reason why you didn't ever take that next step to cross the line to come to faith. Because you're saying, that's, that's too easy. That's too easy. I'm sorry, but the blood of Jesus is not easy. Some of you maybe have not crossed the line to come to faith because you think, clean? Me? You would never use that word to describe you, and, and you have a hard time owning that word to be true of you. Clean? Me? But what if we could embrace that? 
that that could be true of us. I mean, what if from the depths of our being we were able to embrace the notion that before God, that he cannot hold anything against me, that all my sins have been handed over to Christ, and that when he sees me, he sees me as spiggity-span clean. What if we could actually embrace that to be true for us? I wonder what that would do, even for a split nanosecond. How would our hearts respond to that? I mean, would our hearts not leap? What if we could believe that? And maybe you're here today going, that sounds good and all, if I could believe it. But maybe, maybe it sounds good news to you if you could believe it. I want to encourage you to repent and to cross that line today. Perhaps you're here thinking, man, Christianity, that's, that's for the weak. I mean, Christianity is a crutch. I mean, that might work well for you, but I mean, I really don't need it. I mean, if you need it, that's fine. Is Christianity a crutch? Well, I mean, absolutely. I mean, absolutely. And thank God for the crutch, because without it, I would be without hope. Perhaps you're here thinking, oh, this is just too much, and you're just skeptical. Maybe you wish you could believe it, but you just, you know, this sounds silly. I mean, you're educated after all. Uh, And if you're skeptical today, I want to encourage you to bring your skepticism. And I want you to be honest with where you're at. But could today be the day where you take the next step to come to faith and pray and confess, God, I am a sinner. I am spiritually lame. Outside of your rescue, outside of the rescue of Christ, I am helpless and without hope. I receive Jesus and I rest upon him alone to wipe away my sins and to make me clean. Will today be the day where you made that prayer? I sincerely hope so. I want to ask you that you consider making that prayer where you are right now. Because our hope hinges on Christ and Christ alone. I love the story that C.S. Lewis tells in the book, The Silver Chair. If you're a fan of the Chronicles of Narnia, you may uh, know that the character, the main character of the, the hero of the series is a lion, and the lion is a Christ figure. And he's good, but you just, you're not sure what to do with a lion. I mean, who can be in, in the presence of a lion without having your knees knocking? And he's good, but is he safe? I mean, of course he's not safe. He's a lion. And we're never quite sure what to do with this Christ. We're never sure what he's going to require of us. We're never sure what he's going to do to us for us. And we are terrified, but he's good. In the movie, in the, in the book, The Silver Chair, <clears throat> C.S. Lewis speaks about a young girl named Jill. Now, Jill has entered into a strange and magical country where she finds herself alone in the woods. She finds that she is dreadfully thirsty and hears the sound of running water. She comes to an open glade and sees a beautiful stream of water, and just the sight of it makes her feel ten times thirstier than before. But she doesn't rush forward to drink, because in between her and the stream is a lion. She finds herself terrified of the lion, but she is dying of thirst. 
The lion says, if you're thirsty, you may drink. She hears the voice again. If you are thirsty, come and drink. The lion asks, are you not thirsty? Jill says, I'm dying of thirst. The lion replies, then drink. Jill asks the lion if he minds going away while she drinks. I love how C.S. Lewis describes what happens next. The lion answered this only by a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come? said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat girls? she said. I have swallowed up girls and boys, men and women, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. I dare not come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. And the lion replied, there is no other stream. Our hope hinges on Christ and Christ alone. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I want to pray especially for anyone here who does not yet know You. That, Lord, You would reveal to them exactly what You need to reveal to them. And woo them exactly the way they need to be wooed. Convict them exactly the way they need to be convicted. And may the love of Christ, the embrace of Jesus, the goodness of Jesus, be so overwhelmingly beautiful that they cannot help but to fall at Your feet. For those of us here who are maybe whose hearts are stale, uh, maybe who uh, lacks purpose of, or not knowing exactly what we're doing uh, or why we're here and what you're doing in our lives. I ask that, Lord, you would help us to see your goodness for us, that you would give us a lifestyle of repentance, that we may turn to you again and again and again, that we might find life in you. Forgive us for looking elsewhere. I ask for the rest of the service that you would give us exactly what we need. Give us the tangible goodness of the communion that you may, may move towards us with a kiss. That you might show us that you are for us, that you love us, that you will completely want to restore us and make us whole and new. God, it is our, our natural allergy to you that keeps us from doing that many times. And so for us, Father, I ask for your grace to give us exactly what we need. I pray even as we do the chili cook-off, that a time of uh, communion with one another uh, would be not only, only honoring to you, but enjoyable to us because you have redeemed us a people, that you would continue to let, let us uh, to serve together, love one another together, to be on mission together wherever you're calling us, whether it be in our workplace, with our families, with our kids, or with those we just encounter or maybe might not ever meet again. We ask that the love of Jesus will exude through us. We pray this in Christ's name.